This is the beginning of, the, of summer at the story in our new summer sermon series, that's hard to say, is another in the fire, um, expecting God or, or trusting God to do the impossible. So uh, I'll explain that title in a future um, message. If, you're, uh, if, you're, if you know your Bible stories from vacation Bible school when you were a kid, you might know what another in the fire is in reference to. Generally speaking, I'll just let you know, this series is for the times in your life when you need a miracle. You know, there's some times in life when it's smooth sailing and you can put it on cruise control or autopilot or whatever. And this series is not for those times, okay? If you're going through one of those times, I'm happy for you, slightly jealous of you, but it won't be that way forever. And there will be another season where you need what we're going to talk about in this series. This series is about the times when you need God to show up in a big way, to do something unexpected, to do something even miraculous. And some of you are going through a time like this. I know this series was not our original plan for us at the story this summer. I was going to preach on the book of Revelation through the summer. And uh, it's not that I'm afraid to do that. I'm, I am a little afraid to do that. But, but we called an audible last month after the, the news broke that we were going to need to find a new home for this campus this year, which is, if you know anything about the real estate world in Houston, it's, it seems impossible. It seems undoable. And we're going through one of these seasons now as a community where we need God to come through in a big way. We're not on autopilot right now. There is no autopilot for uncharted waters. We're, we're in crunch time. We need a miracle. And so I thought if we're going to do this, we need to talk about it. Let's be real about it. And let's look at Bible stories where God came through in some unfortunate but impossible circumstances. Because if God is God, he was the same God then as he is today. And if he did the impossible then, he can do it now. So we need to know what that looks like and, and what to expect from such a God. So for seven weeks, we're going to unpack different kinds of stories that tell different kinds of, uh, of different kinds of experiences or circumstances where God came through when life got messy. And life can really get messy sometimes, can it? All right. Older people in the room are nodding a little, a little more heartily than younger people. It's because the longer you live, the messier it gets. Okay, some of you wide-eyed young people with all your optimism, you have no idea how messy it can get. And today we're going to start the series by talking about one of the ways, I think most common ways, that life gets messy for most people today, and that is by way of our families. Our families can make life so messy. And before I get into the nitty-gritty of it, and just, you know, sort of uh, rail on the idea of family. I need to offer up some pastoral prerequisite sort of platitudes, okay? I love family. I love your family. I hope you love your family, 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 family. Family matters, family values, uh, whatever. Okay, so you know I'm pro-family, all right? Family is such a force for good in so many of our lives. But family can also be a source of great pain and some of our deepest hurt. Some of our darkest secrets can be traced back to family. 
Family is one of the only institutions I can think of that simultaneously can build you up and destroy you. (laughs) It can give you such a sense of self while destroying your self-esteem. Like only family can do that. And so I wanna wanna be honest about family. I don't wanna just throw it out the window. I want us to figure out how to maneuver these situations. All right, because on the one hand, as George Santayana, who's a great philosopher, once wrote, he said, family is one of nature's masterpieces. And that's important to remember at all times, he's right. There was also another George, the comedian George Burns, who said, there's nothing better in life than having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. And that's also true. And George Burns was very old when he said that. He knew what he was talking about. He had the wisdom of years behind him. Both Georges were right, mysteriously. Family can be such a blessing, but it can also be so messy sometimes. So what do you do when it's your own family that's disappointed you beyond belief, that's broken your heart? your own family that has, has, has destroyed you. What do you do when, as in the scary movies, you know, the call is coming from inside the house, like the threat is your own blood? How do you manage through a situation like that? Well, listen, um, there, the Bible has a lot to say about broken families, okay? So as we talk about today's um, question, which is how do you heal when it's your family that's broken you. I want you to know that the Bible doesn't beat around the bush or pretend like there's any such thing as a perfect or plastic family. No such thing exists in the Bible. In fact, if you read it honestly, the Bible can sometimes read like an anthology of one toxic family after another. I mean, the families in the Bible invent new ways of being dysfunctional. (laughs) They are just that bad at it. Even Jesus' own family, his earthly family, showed signs of fragmentation during his life on earth. Jesus' family didn't believe in him. (laughs) If your family doesn't believe in you, (laughs) just imagine what Jesus felt like. He's like, I'm Jesus, guys. You know, at least he had a case. (laughs) And so Jesus' family, as he's preaching one day, they stage like a public intervention to come and take him away. They thought he had lost his mind. And that's just how families work. They win and they lose. And some win more than others, some lose more than others. But man, the Bible shows us how bad it can really get. And it starts at the very beginning. Adam and Eve. You know, the thing about Adam and Eve is that you might expect them to have somehow figured it out because they didn't have parents to screw them up. <laughs> They're the only ones who didn't have parents to blame. And so maybe they could get around that kind of baggage and passing down that kind of baggage to their kids. Nope, Adam and Eve proceeded to raise the world's first homicidal maniac uh, named Cain. Cain single-handedly wiped out one-fourth of the world's population. <laughs> his brother Abel, there's only four of them. And so <laughs> the, 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 the storyline continues beyond just Adam and Eve throughout the Old Testament to guys you thought were heroes. I mean, we all thought Noah was this sweet old man on a boat, you know, with the beard and the giraffes and polar bears beside him, waving at you and your children's Bible. And, and turns out Noah had a, a human side. 
Because the part they don't tell you at Vacation Bible School is that the minute the waters receded, Noah walked off that boat and drunk himself into a stupor and stripped naked, and then he passed out naked in front of his kids. That's not the Noah they taught us about. On the other hand, however, if you've ever been on a cruise with your children, uh, you know we shouldn't judge Noah too quickly, all right? Never been on a boat with your kids more than a few days. You don't know what it's like, all right? Noah needed to take the edge off at that point. Who knows? But you see these kinds of patterns repeating again and again. Abraham and Sarah had a messed up family life. David and Bathsheba. Solomon and his host of wives and concubines. And it it just gets really messy in the Bible, And and there is no family in the Bible or anywhere else I've ever found that was quite as messy as the one we're introduced to in Genesis, in the second half of of the book called Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. These are descendants of Abraham. This is supposed to be the family line of promise through which God would save the whole world. And yet they just can't seem to get it together. And, and, And I'm gonna talk a little bit about how bad it got in this family, but I gotta set the table First, we're going to talk today about a young man who was betrayed by his family in the most egregious way imaginable. If you've ever felt like your family sold you out, like this young man understands because at the age of 17, his brothers literally sold him out as a slave. And to to understand how we get there, we have to know that for the 17 years before that, Joseph's father made no secret of the fact that Joseph was his favorite kid, which is just parenting 101, really. Every parent has a favorite, but you're not supposed to let them know, right? You can let the favorite know when it's just you and him, but, but you're not supposed to tell the other ones. Well, Jacob made no secret of this. He had lots of sons we know of, and and he made no secret of the fact that Joseph was his favorite one. He never asked the other boys what they dreamed about last night, but every time Joseph woke up, what'd you dream about, Joseph? And he listened intently as Joseph told him the dreams he'd had. He never cared what the other boys were wearing or how they looked or how they felt about themselves, but when Joseph became a man, Jacob had a a special order, handmade robe of many colors that he gave just to Joseph, right? And Joseph was too young to pick up on the potential problem of flaunting that relationship with his father, okay? Not to excuse anything the brothers did. I'm just saying these dynamics should have been obvious to somebody in that house because this is what happened next after that envy and jealousy wore Jacob's other sons down. So Joseph, 17 years old, went out, his father sent him out after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. They've had it, like they're done. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, at this point, the, the, the plans change a little bit. One of the brothers loses his nerve a little bit and says, let's just throw him in the cistern first and then let's have lunch and figure out what to do with him, all right? So 
That's what happens next. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. Joseph, come on, man, read the room. You can't wear that thing all over the place. He wore it to go fetch them in the field. And they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. It was just like a, a plaster-lined giant hole in the ground that, where they would store water for irrigation purposes. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they just decided they were hungry after, you know, uh, disposing of their brother. And they, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, guys. Like this line just gets me every time. Like this is suddenly Mr. Morality. Like he's our brother. Let's not kill him and get our hands dirty. Let's just sell him and tell everybody we killed him or he's dead. You know, it's like, doesn't even make sense. But when you're this deep in resentment, sometimes you don't make sense. And so he says, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. That's, uh, so it was 11 of them. So that was just a, a little more than two shekels of silver apiece. Not, not a lot for a brother. And they sold him to the Ishmaelites who took him into Egypt. And they went home and they told their daddy that Joseph had been attacked by a wild animal. And they dipped his coat of many colors in the blood of an animal and showed it to their daddy and said, he's dead. These boys were lost. They were beyond lost. I mean, they, they were completely depraved. Now, Joseph, because of their actions, spent the next couple of years as a slave. So I think from like 17 to 19, maybe 17 to 20, who knows how long it was. He was a slave in Egypt for a man named Potiphar. Now, while he was a slave, he worked his way up. There's like a hierarchy of the, of the servants of that house, and he became the number one guy. And uh, even with that slight improvement of his life, things started to get worse in a hurry. Not so much because he was a slave, it was part of it, but also because Potiphar's wife, well, how do I describe this woman? Uh, what's the, the kids say thirsty, right? She's thirsty. And uh, she was uh, not a good person. Okay, I'll just leave it at that because this is what happened next. She develops this unhealthy, creepy crush. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, this wasn't a one-time infatuation. This was like an ongoing ask. Come on, come on, every day, all right? And every day he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties. He's just trying to get his work done. But none of the other servants were around. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. All right, guys, paying attention, okay? This is how you handle. And women too, this is how you handle it, all right? Somebody gets aggressive, you run. You run. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him this story. And this is where this woman really gets under my skin. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me 
and ran out of the house. And because she played the victim, everybody who mattered took her side. No one stopped to ask, wait, why would a sexual assailant leave his cloak here, like casually, just here, have this? Uh, why, why didn't he take your clothes off? Why did you take his? Like, nobody's asking those kinds of questions. They just take her at her word. Joseph, falsely accused, is then convicted of sexual assault of an Egyptian citizen, and he is sent into prison for the rest of his 20s. Until he's 30 years old, he's in prison. Can you imagine? Day after day, night after night, in prison in a foreign land because of something your brothers did. Can you imagine the level of of resentment that adds up and and just piles up in your heart? Can you imagine what that's like? like? Some of you have felt the pain of being sold out by your family, betrayed by your own. But can you imagine what this must have felt like if what you've gone through feels as bad as it does? Can you imagine what this must have felt like. I think it's important for us to sit with Joseph's story for a second and put ourselves in his place because in some small way, many of us have been there. Some of us are there now and that pain is real. That hurt is very real. It's in the room right now. The call has come from within the house. Your own people have hurt you. The ones you looked up to have betrayed you in some way. The ones who should have protected you went after you. So what do you do when the resentment builds up? When it threatens to own you? Like it must have threatened to own Joseph. How do you handle this? And we look at Joseph, it's a miracle. What happened with Joseph? It's a miracle that given what his brothers did to him, he didn't spend the rest of his days thinking of ways to get back at them or just fantasizing about their demise about having the opportunity to just murder them for what they did to him. That's not how it went down with Joseph. Joseph never lost hope. He never lost perspective. If anything, he gained more perspective. Why? Because I think the evidence is clear in the story. If you read it, Joseph never stops talking about God. Every time he talks, God's name is on his lips. Every time he speaks in scripture, he's speaking of God primarily. I mean, it says in Genesis 39, 20 and 21, while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. So yeah, Joseph was in prison. Yeah, life was out of hand. Yeah, it was hard, out of control, but the Lord was with him there. And as far as Joseph was concerned, nothing mattered more than that. And when nothing matters more than the Lord being with you, you'll be surprised what you're able to get through be surprised what you're able to tolerate, what you're able to forgive. If nothing matters more than just the Lord being with you, it doesn't matter where you are, where you end up, where life takes you and what other people do to you. Because Joseph had been forgotten by his own family, sold by his own brothers, falsely accused of a horrible crime he never committed, sent to prison as a slave and a prisoner 13 years of his life in his prime, but the Lord was with him and that's all that mattered to him. Now, things start to turn around for Joseph. And when you live without the resentment, like a cancer within you, things will eventually turn around for you. 
If you don't let the, the bitterness eat you alive, things turn around for you because people will see something special in you. Everywhere Joseph went because he spoke of God and he was with God and God was with him, he shined a light. Even when he was a slave in Potiphar's house, he rose through the ranks immediately in a short amount of time. Even when he was in prison, he got the attention of the warden of the prison. He became like the, the warden's right-hand man overseeing the other prisoners. Eventually, he got the attention of Pharaoh himself because of his own intellectual and spiritual acumen. And so he was so wise and insightful, the Pharaoh granted him not only his freedom, but the Pharaoh granted Joseph a job in his government. In specific, he gave Joseph the, the role, the task of overseeing the Pharaoh's famine response because there was a drought in the land. You might remember there was a hint of a drought coming earlier in the story in Genesis 37 when the brothers threw Joseph in the cistern and it was what? Dry, that ain't a good sign. The drought had already begun back then. The cistern was dry. The famine was, was, was what was coming. And Joseph knew that God gave him that wisdom and Joseph warned the Pharaoh and gave the Pharaoh a plan for his people to not starve to death. And so Pharaoh rewarded him with this role and, and Joseph suddenly out of nowhere becomes a somebody. Of course, uh, the backstory here is where, where it gets a little twisted is the, the, the famine wasn't just in Egypt. It was throughout the region. And so it wasn't just Egyptians. It was also Joseph's dad and his brothers who were facing starvation. So of course, Jacob at, at the point of uh, where they're facing extinction here, he sends his brothers to Egypt to find some food because he heard that some wise ruler in Egypt is doing food distributions, go bring us back some food. And then this drama unfolds between Joseph and his brothers. At first, Joseph recognizes them because they look just as pitiful as ever but they don't recognize him because he is this high and mighty figure in Egypt now. And he, he refrains from telling them at first who he is. And there's this tension in the story for a few chapters until finally Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Genesis 45 verses one through five. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have, anyone, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Joseph wept so loudly. Can you feel his pain? Can you feel it just coming to the surface? Pain, but also something else, right? Pain, but relief. I don't know. I can't, even, I can't even put words to it. But all the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's house heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to the brothers, come closer. And when they did so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed. Don't be angry. This is amazing. This right here is amazing. It's a miracle. Don't be distressed. The last time he saw these guys, what were they doing to him? You think he ever forgot about their laughter? The sound of the coins banging together? Like, can you imagine how he must have felt? He said, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because, here it goes, it was to save lives that who? God sent me ahead of you. 
In particular, he could have said it was to save your sorry lives that God sent me. So he had already taken what the brothers had done to him and given it to God and found a purpose with God in their evil actions. By the time they came to him, all the ill will and hard feelings were behind him because he had found the purpose of God in it all to save lives despite what they had done to him. Next, Joseph ordered his brothers to go home and bring their dad and the rest of the family back to Egypt with them. And there's a a few sweet chapters at the end of Genesis where Joseph is able to reconcile with his brothers and with his father. Their embrace is one of the most touching scenes in all of scripture. And and, And then Jacob died in Egypt. And after this, we see again, the true colors of his brothers who were not transformed at all by the mercy that Joseph showed them. When Joseph's brother, this is from Genesis 50, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if people that are guilty and unforgiven, people unacquainted with grace are always in fear, are always afraid that the forgiveness they've been shown is a ruse, that it's not real. They're always paranoid. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? What if he's just been pretending for dad? Dad's gone now, we're done. So they came and threw themselves down before him and uh, twist of irony, (laughs) they say, we are your slaves. I don't know how Joseph just didn't, stomp them down (laughs) right then. How dare they even pretend to know what slavery's like in front of Joseph? We are your slaves. Have mercy on us, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Again, Joseph speaking of God constantly. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done the saving of many lives, so then don't be afraid. Now, wow. What an amazing story about forgiveness. And and I'm tempted just to let the story sit on its own. Like, what can you add to a story like that? But then the more that I reflected on this story and how it hit me, the more I realized that though it is so touching, it is such a, it's a Hollywood-esque, like, Hallmark movie. It's so emotionally gripping. Hits you in the chest. Brings a tear to my eye. However, on its own, this story does almost nothing to teach me why it's important to forgive. Or why it's better to forgive why it would have been better for Joseph to forgive instead of exacting some revenge. Like this story feels good, but I I need more to figure out why Joseph shouldn't have taken his brothers and thrown them in prison for 13 years. Because that's what I would have done at a minimum. And so I need, I need the, I need the why I need the, I need to know how it works and taken on its own. This story doesn't accomplish that. It's a, it's a highly emotional story and it's beautiful, but I need more. And I think many of us do as well because if it's just emotion driving you to forgive, it won't be enough when life gets really messy 
what will happen is you'll be tempted to think, I'm just not as good a person as Joseph. Joseph's just a better person than me, so I can't forgive like he did. Good on Joseph, that's not me. Listen, you, you need to learn to read stories like Joseph carefully and in context of the rest of scripture. Otherwise, you'll be tempted to just chalk it up to Joseph and other people in the Bible being better than you. That's not the case. Joseph was no better than you. Joseph just knew where the source of grace was. Joseph knew that the source of forgiveness was God and not his own capacity for niceness. And that's something all of us can come to understand. And so as I, as I uh, get ready to, to wrap here, I wanna do three quick things. I wanna talk about three things that we learn when we read Joseph's story carefully and in context. Are you ready? We're gonna go fast, okay? You ready? Here we go. The first thing we learn about the sins of our families when life gets messy and, and how to forgive and how to heal is that families are fallible. So you need to check your expectations. And this isn't super profound, this is very practical, but Joseph's story is a reminder that there's no such thing as a perfect family. And again, the older you are, the better you know that. Some of you still idolize your mom or your dad and you think they'll never hurt you. Oh boy, like, just wait. Some of you young parents, my baby, she's perfect. She'll never do anything to hurt me. Woo. <laughs> just wait, just wait. You don't even know. You don't even know how bad it will get at times, how hard and messy it will get. And, and what we have to ask is why does that hurt us more? Why does it, the heartbreak of a family, the betrayal of a, a parent or a child hurt us more than a colleague or a boss or a classmate? Well, it's because of expectations. You expect more from your family and you should. That's, it's a perfectly natural thing. However, there's a line there somewhere. We have to know that although we, we can have higher expectations for our families, we shouldn't have unreasonable expectations for our families to perform up to our sort of moral expectations. So there's, there's a line there somewhere where we are unreasonable in our expectations because your mom and dad, your parents, your siblings, that aunt and uncle that you idolize, all they are is sinners just like everybody else. Your mom and dad are just the sinners who happen to give birth to you. So they're no different from any other sinners. Romans 3, Romans, uh, 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So your mom is a sinner. You can tell her I told her after this, this caller. Your dad is a sinner. You are a sinner. Your child's a sinner. Everyone in your family is a sinner. And the one thing we know about sinners is that they sin. And so this isn't to say you should let them off the hook for anything they've done or to excuse bad behavior. It is just to moderate your expectations so that you don't set them up to let you down. This is a kind of heart insurance to make your expectations of your family more realistic because sinners are going to sin. We should expect that of one another and we should be ready to respond with grace, all right? Uh, I think tempering our expectations is important. And I think Joseph had this kind of perspective because of his time in prison. This isn't really in the story. This is me reading into the story, but I think his time to reflect in prison led him to look back on his naivete, wearing that coat of many colors around, prancing around about it, talking about his dreams in front of his brothers. 
I think Joseph knew he would give anything to feel his father's embrace again as he sat in prison alone. And then he thought, maybe, maybe that's how my brothers felt <laughs> all that time when I was getting all that attention. Maybe it's all that any young man or woman really wants is their dad's attention and affection and approval. So maybe Joseph thought, of course, my brothers wanted that. And of course, my brothers are idiots, but, but maybe they craved his attentions and affections as much as I did. Who wouldn't lose their minds in a situation like that? And a little bit of perspective goes a long way. And so Joseph was able to take a more positive or, or forgiving posture toward his brothers when they showed up in Egypt. Second thing we see from Joseph's story about forgiving family is that forgiveness is always theological. What I mean by that is it's not emotional. It's not about you being a good enough person. It's not sentimental. It's never sentimental. Real forgiveness is theological. And so you have to check in with God. And what I mean with this is that your forgiveness of other people, you forgiving others always begins with God forgiving you. And we get it backwards. We think if we forgive others, we'll prove how nice we are and God will love us more. Listen, when, when Joseph said to his brothers that line from, from Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He understood something about forgiveness that most of us miss is that it begins with God. When Joseph said, but God, that's like the theme of his life. That's his mantra. And I want you to conceive of a future where that becomes your mantra too. You hurt me in this way, mom. You, you, you devastated me, dad, or, or I'm so disappointed in my family, but God, but God, but God. What if this became your mantra too? What kind of healing could that bring not only to you, but to your family as well? Jesus, when I say read Joseph's story in the context of scripture, look to the rest of scripture to see examples that can help you put some meat on this bone. Otherwise, it's just an emotional story of Joseph forgiving his brothers. Well, you look to Jesus and what he said about forgiveness. Matthew 18 is the seminal story of Jesus and forgiveness. Peter came up to Jesus and said, I'm thinking about forgiving someone, Jesus, but it's hard. Should I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Peter's so puffed up and proud. Seven times is a lot for Peter. And Jesus said, no, Peter, no, don't worry, not seven. Try 77 times. And what he, what he meant with that was infinitely. You should forgive infinitely, which is an unfathomable thing. That is a miracle if you can do it. That is unnatural. But he proceeded to tell a story about a king who had debtors and he decided to collect on his debts one day. And he goes to his servant who owes him the most. 10,000 bags of gold, he owed him, Jesus said, which is intentionally hyperbolic. Nobody had that kind of money. 10,000 bags of gold. How much even is that? Jesus is clearly talking to men who did not know money. 10,000 bags of gold could be anything. The point was, that's more money than I'll ever have. Everybody in his audience was thinking that. And, and, and this king said, give me what you owe me. And the servant said, I don't have it. And the king said, throw this man and his wife and his kids into prison until they give me what's mine. And the man begged and pleaded, please have mercy. I don't have your money. And the king, in an unexpected twist, set the man free from his debt completely. More than forbearance, more than an extension, he forgave the debt completely. He, he absorbed what was owed on his own books, okay? So after that, what you would expect is for that servant to go out with not a care in the world, 
whistling, skipping down the street. I'm free, I'm free. But no, on his way home that day, he runs into another person who owes him money. Not 10,000 bags of gold, mind you, just like a hundred pieces of silver. Still a lot, but not that much. And he said to the man, he grabbed him by the throat and put him against the wall and said, give me my money. The man said, I don't have your money. I'm sorry, please have mercy. And he said, away with you, be gone, thrown in prison. And he had the man in prison for this pittance that he was owed. The other servants saw and heard about what had happened and they went to the king. They were appalled by what had happened. And the king was even more appalled. The king had the man called back into his chamber and he said, how dare you act with, with such unforgiveness so unmercifully after I forgave your insurmountable debt, 10,000 bags of gold. How dare you go out and exploit someone else for a hundred pieces of silver. And then Jesus finished the story with these haunting words. He said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or your sister in your heart. Jesus always connected God's forgiving you with your ability to forgive someone else. It's not that you do such a good job of forgiving my friends and, and enemies and my family that God loves me so much and he, he owes me forgiveness now. That's not how it works. Flip that script because it starts with you receiving forgiveness from God for your sins before going out and forgiving someone else. The more grace you receive from God, the more grace you'll have to offer to others, including your family. Third and finally, free people, free people. So check your heart. I, I often said that hurt people hurt people. It's one of my mantras. It's just a reminder that the people that cause you the most pain are probably in the most pain. But I heard a friend recently say that it's also true that free people free people. And what he means is when someone's really been freed from their guilt and their shame of their past, they pass that freedom along to someone else. If that man in Jesus' story was really free of his debt, he would have gone out instead of exploiting someone who owed him a little bit, he would have gone out and freed someone else. And another reminder is that Joseph's brothers, long before they sold Joseph into slavery, they were enslaved themselves by resentment and bitterness. Enslaved people, enslaved people. Do you see how this works? And so I don't mean this to just be about others. I'm talking about you and me right now. Whenever you struggle with unforgiveness, sometimes you are tempted to think it's just because what they did was so bad. They deserve this distance I'm putting between us. They deserve this punishment I'm giving them. No, no, no. When you struggle with unforgiveness, nine times out of 10, it's because you have yet to receive forgiveness for something deep inside yourself some secret, some dark sin you choose not to acknowledge because it's easier to acknowledge their sins against you than it is to acknowledge your sins against God. And you're, you're tempted to think, I've never done anything as bad as what they did to me. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. That might be the case. I doubt it, but it might be the case. But even if it is the case, the beauty of the promise of the gospel is that even if you've done what they did to you and worse, even if you've racked up a debt infinitely greater than what they owe you, you'd still be forgiven. God would still set you free 
from that debt, no matter how great it is. That's the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is always a miracle. And it always begins with God forgiving you. And so before you go out and check on those who have wronged you today, even your family, go to God first. Check your own heart and go to God with your own sin first because it's only after he removes the burden that you're quietly carrying around, the burden of your own sin and debt, that you'll be freed up to free others. Hurt people hurt people, enslaved people enslave people, but the promise of the gospel is that free people, free people. That's our hope. That's the hope for every family in this room, for every family represented at the Story Church. And I hope we take this to heart today. Would y'all pray with me? Father, we thank you for this reminder, as difficult as it is to consider forgiveness when our hearts are wrapped up in bitterness and anger. When we've been wronged, legitimately wronged by someone who should have looked out for us, they should have protected us. Our families, Lord, they should have circled the wagons when we were hurting. Instead, they kicked us when we were down. And it's so hard. It's inconceivable to think about forgiving such sins. But Lord, help us to just take a step back and to begin in our own hearts with our own sin, to be set free and forgiven of our debt owed to you. And by absorbing your abundant, infinite grace, Lord, set us free to offer that grace to others, even our families who have betrayed us. I pray for healing right now for everyone who's hurting. Real healing. Holy Spirit, would you come and heal us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.